Coach Brad here. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about the Chasing Poker Greatness VIP newsletter. Hopping onto the VIP newsletter is the absolute best thing you can do to ensure this plucky little podcast keeps going indefinitely into the future. When you sign up, you'll get exclusive behind-the-scenes Chasing Poker Greatness content, access to the private Chasing Poker Greatness Slack community, notifications for product launches, entries into monthly free coaching giveaways, and much, much more. So if you're wondering what the absolute best thing you can do to support your favorite poker podcast, head to ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash VIP and access the newsletter today. One more time, that's ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash VIP. And now, back to the show. Poker's legendary champions. Next generation stars and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. When Brad Wilson interviewed me for his podcast, Chasing Poker Greatness, a few months ago, he described me as one of the hardest working human beings to ever step into the world of poker. Now, from some, I'd write this off as merely hyperbolic and flattering, but coming from Brad, it was like having Phil Ivey compliment me on a check raise. Brad Wilson is an absolute dynamo of work ethic and creative energy. In less than nine months, he has produced over 60 episodes of his podcast while also running a coaching business, Enhancer Edge, and playing high stakes online poker. Oh, and he also has two kids. <laughs> Today, you may be kind of confused. Why am I introducing Brad when this is not the grid, but Brad's own podcast, Chasing Poker Greatness? Well, this is my opportunity to turn the tables on Brad and ask some questions that I'm sure all of you listeners are dying to know about your host. Um, hello, Brad. Welcome to your own show. Thanks for having me. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously. Thank you for um, inviting me to guest host. This is really fun. As you know, apparently this time I can ask you about anything. We don't have to get right into a hand. <laughs> yeah, you, you can go whichever direction that you want. So to start, just tell me what greatness means to you in regard to poker. Because that is the, the title of this podcast, Chasing Poker Greatness. Greatness to me is high performance at a high level for a sustained duration. And it also embodies representing poker in a positive way. I think those are the things that I consider great. Growing the game, representing poker in a good way, um, basically drawing more people to this just amazing card game and being successful over the long haul. I think those are the things that really encapsulate greatness. In your podcast, you're, you're interviewing people from all like kind of spheres of poker, not just players, sure. also not just people who are already super established. You're also interviewing people kind of who have made it or who are about to make it or are, you know, legends of the game. Yeah, that's the, the aspiration, right? Like this is the most fundamental part of the poker journey are chasing poker greatness, right? Maybe they don't think they are, they're at it today, but that one day down the line, they will get there. 
And, you know, I think that, I just think it's important to focus on the folks who are also growing the game and then aspire to one day be played at a high level. Plus, if I limited it to only the greatest poker players, I'd have about, you know, 100, 200 episodes and that'd be in. Yeah, and you intended for the to this to be like a a long a long project because there are so many incredible people in poker. Um, you you also have a coaching business that is kind of tied in with your podcast, right? In some ways, you have similar philosophy about your coaching business, enhance your edge, and the uh, concept of greatness. Yeah, I mean the coaching the coaching business is. Let's be frank. I'm a pretty horrible business person. I'm a poker player. So I'm learning about all the aspects of business and coaching is the lowest hanging fruit. I enjoy coaching. I enjoy helping people solve problems and get to a level in their poker career that they've had trouble getting to previously. Like that's something that I value. But I would say that in an ideal world, you know, the podcast has sponsorships. I get paid to create the show. And I'm smart enough to come up with a business model that makes sense over the long term. So really, the the coaching was just implemented as a necessity to pay for this adventure because we both know that it's pretty expensive producing a podcast regularly. And it takes a whole lot of time to put out a product that you can really feel proud of. Absolutely. And it's incredible how much you've done in such a short time, as I mentioned in the intro. So how have you seen your um, coaching business kind of change and grow since you launched your podcast in October of 2019? Uh, I mean, it's I have only a handful of people. And the way that I go about coaching is, I like one of my students, for instance, he lives close to me in Atlanta. He texts me, we talk on the phone about things other than poker. And I love having these relationships with the guys that invest in me. And if I have a ton of students, I feel like I I can't text them all, all the time. I can't be there when they need me. I can't be friends with all of them, which is what I really enjoy more than all the other things. So I like keeping it at, you know, a handful of people that take sessions on a regular basis, like once a week. Now, you mentioned that you're not the, that you're like getting into business of poker, not just poker. Um, has obviously lots of lessons to it. Now, when you tell me about that, because I've been doing chess coaching for many, many years and also advising other chess coaches, when you tell me that you're also texting students and giving them all this great support, is that something that you factor into your hourly, knowing that you're going to be helping them like off the one hour that you actually give them the former coaching? Or is that more just like a friend thing? It's just like a bonus. I like Mm -hmm. being there. You know, I, I give them sessions, the recorded video of the sessions that we have so that they can watch them back on their own time. And then they can ask follow-up questions that maybe didn't come to them in the moment, right? I, I look at it as, you know, it's an all, all-encompassing package of poker coaching. Sometimes you need an answer to a question in the moment that maybe you forget about a few days later that you just can ping me and get a response. And I just, I like being available for guys uh, in the moment that they're struggling, I think that's important to me. I'm not the I, I'm not the person I'm not the podcaster or the coach that says like, oh, we're going to do a show for one hour on the dot. Like with the podcast, if we go over, then we go over. You know, if if we hit an organic stopping point at about the hour mark, great. But if we still have some awesome stuff to dig into, then I, I want to go the extra thirty minutes. And the coaching sessions are the same, typically an hour. But if we're on an important thing that I feel like 
they need to understand in this session or they're getting stuck, we'll just stick on that and you know it'll go for an hour and a half and then they can ask me follow-up questions in the meantime. I love that. And you know, the thing about a hard stop is that if you do have one, because you know, some businesses they need them. I think it's really important to make it feel like it's not a hard stop. So you have to be like strategic enough to plan for it in advance because otherwise your client or your interviewee kind of recognizes that you're kind of rushing towards the end. And it's not really a a great look at all. Um, For for the interviewer either, right? Like you do this all the time. If you're like, we got to stop in 10 minutes and we're in an interesting story and there are things that we haven't touched, you're likely to skip over those to get to the conclusion of the podcast by, you know, asking the questions that you typically end with. So it's not good for the interviewer and it's also not good for the person being interviewed. Now you recently gave a webinar on bluffing. So in addition to doing private coaching, you also do these group sessions occasionally. Um, Tell us a little bit about how that went. It went well. I was afraid. I was scared. I've had ideas for courses and webinars for years and if you can imagine me sitting at my computer, opening a PowerPoint, starting to create a slide deck on this thing that's in my mind that I want to teach people. And I sit there, I hit friction for like five or 10 minutes staring at this blank presentation. And then I have the thought, I could just play poker and you know, make 50 or 100 an hour. I would just fire up tables, right? Like it would, it would be the path of least resistance. And I've recently come to know that that's something, uh, it's a cognitive bias called the ambiguity effect, where if you don't know if an outcome is likely to be positive, you oftentimes don't take the the risk that's involved. So for me, the masterclass was overcoming the ambiguity effect and really just putting my feet to the fire and saying, okay, like this is on you. If you don't get sponsorship, okay, how are you going to monetize this podcast so that it lasts for a long time in the future? Because as much as I love investing the time and energy, like I said, there's a big cost and I want it to go on forever. But the reality is, you know, it's not sustainable me coming out with three or five episodes a week without generating any revenue. And I didn't want to rely on a sponsor like, you know, your people, the poker stars, um, (laughs) or a big platform like that. So I thought, okay, let's bet on yourself. Let's leverage your network and just see how it turns out. See if you make sales, see how the presentation goes, get that experience under your belt. And then it can give you confidence to come out with another webinar or another course in the future. I love it. I love that uh, the topic. Um, I think it sounds really intriguing. Um, What do you think the biggest myth is related to bluffing for either your audience or just in general? The biggest myth related to bluffing that people do it a lot. I think that's yeah, or uh, the misconception. Maybe misconception is better than myth in this context. Yeah, I, I just again going back to the ambiguity effect. I think what happens is why people don't bluff often enough is because they're unsure if a bluff is going to lead them to a positive outcome. So they have this uncertainty and they don't pull the trigger. They're less inclined to pull the trigger, which typically just means that in a lot of spots you're under bluffing or you get to the river in such a way that you lack value in your range to call a big bluff on the river. And so like just basically realizing what you're trying to accomplish with a bluff is extremely important to me and understanding like, when should I be pulling the trigger? When should I not be pulling the trigger? When should I be making call downs because players are incentivized to pull the trigger? 
I know this is a long way of not answering your question about myths of bluffing, but basically people just don't do it often enough, in my opinion, especially in the cash game scene deeper in the decision tree. So just shining a light on maybe where folks could bluff more and it has a high frequency of success, giving them that confidence through illustrations so that when they get there, you know, they're not thinking, oh, this is a spot I'm completely unfamiliar with and I don't know what to do, which leads to not bluffing. They get there and they have, they say to themselves, I have some familiarity here, so I'm going to pull the trigger because I realize this is a spot with a likely good intended outcome. That's really interesting. And, you know, I know that you're also um, have a lot of experience in live poker. Lately, you've been playing more online, obviously, as all live players are um, because of social distancing practices. But you've talked a lot about in your YouTube videos about tells and you had some really interesting footage on that. Um, and, I, you know, when I when I get to this uh, point about how people don't bluff enough. Now, of course, when you say that, you're usually talking about people who are you know, somewhat serious about poker because completely new players often are the other way that they bluff too much because they don't understand the value to bluff ratio. But um, I, I, I would agree with that. And I will throw a curveball here and say, what if they're right not to bluff a lot because they have tells and therefore they're actually correct in under bluffing because if they, um, when they do bluff, they can't help themselves. So what I'm trying to say is that maybe the cognitive bias is also rooted in something that is real. Sure. And so that the, perhaps there's like a different thing they need to solve as well as just having more intellectual knowledge. With any situation where you're navigating cognitive bias, my suggestion is to get sample on that specific scenario and look at the sample objectively and kind of see if your, your intuition is leading you astray. Like, I, I'm a big believer in intuition as well, especially in the live poker realm. Lucky Chewy, I think, said it very, very well that like an intuitive player, when they make an exploit, really what they're doing is node locking perfectly in a spot versus a specific opponent. And like, I just love the way that he phrased that and said that because in live poker, in live poker, if you get to tell that somebody's not folding the river, then don't bluff. You don't need to be balanced. You don't need to pull the trigger there. That's a that's a a factor that you need to take into consideration. Um, so if you have th- that those data points, well, yeah, then don't bluff there. But if you don't have data points and if you don't understand human behavior, um, by the way, when you mentioned that a lot of recreational players tend to over bluff in some spots, that's absolutely true as well, right? They're just not choosing the right spots. Uh, the good players can manufacture c- scenarios where a recreational player is going to be over bluffing and then exploit the fact that they're o- over bluffing by overcalling, right? For instance, a spot that comes up all the time is, especially in live poker, because in live po- poker, you can leverage social pressure. So like, say there's $1,000 in the pot and you have you have a value hand but you have a physical tell that your opponent's not likely to call a big bet, right? Where you don't think that the way their range is constructed, they can call a big bet. Well, you can bet like $100 or $75 to induce raises from the bluffs in their range. And basically you're just manipulating, you're manipulating the live, your live read that they don't have much value here. And so you make a small bet to induce a raise and then you snap it to get max value. So like you can manufacture spots where it, it appears as if 
players who are inexperienced are going to bluff way more frequently. And I, I tweeted this the other night that really the goal of poker is to just know your opponent's ranges better than they know them themselves, right? Like this is the fundamental goal of playing this game. If I know how you're going to react better than you know yourself, that's going to give me a giant, giant edge as we get deeper into the decision tree. So it's just finding spots where you have clarity and your opponents don't. Yeah, that's that's really well put. I like the way it's just a, a very nice encapsulation. Now, uh, with uh, going back to your series on bluffs, so you did a webinar, but in addition to that, you also had um, hand analysis on your podcast about some of the best bluffs in history. Was there any that you've either covered or going to cover in the future that really sticks out as like your favorite bluff? I mean, the Tom Dwan bluff, the three ways versus Peter Eastgate and Barry Greenstein's one of my favorites of all time, just because there are so many variables that he leveraged amazingly. The fact that Eastgate overcalled the flop and likely had a deuce and that he could leverage the fact that Barry Greenstein has tens full on occasion and then bet three ways to effectively make Peter Eastgate fold his range uh, because of the threat of Barry Greenstein. Um, And then Barry Greenstein, obviously, it's really tough for him to go to war on a board like 10 deuce deuce with aces. I mean, that's one of my favorite bluffs of all time. You know, that was 11 years ago and it was just incredibly, incredibly done. So that's a bluff that I, I, I do holds a place that's near and dear in my heart. Yeah, and that was one of them that you covered on your series, yeah, right? Sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. very nice. And I, I want to go back to the tells because what I was actually saying in a way was also that sometimes people don't have enough knowledge about the strategy and the math of a spot. And sometimes they're not good enough at disguising their emotions because uh, a bluff, especially on a river is a lower frequency play just because you don't get there as often if you're not um, playing tons of volume, right? Because you don't get to the river that often and you don't often get a huge pot in the river with your bluff range, right? The combination of the two things is going to make it um, infrequent just by definition, right? Sure. So um, what about that aspect of it? Like trying to unravel like the fact that you might have an intellectual problem, but you also might have an emotional problem. Like how do you separate the two? Like sometimes, like if people don't bluff enough, it might be that they are not aware enough of the range that they should be bluffing with and how they should split up their ranges in in that particular spot. And it could be that they're just scared that their opponent is going to read them well if they bluff in that range. Well, what's interesting is that... In that spot, rather. Yeah, like what's interesting is that when it comes to bluffing, the one thing that you have to keep in mind is how players structure their value range. And that's going to determine whether you pull the trigger in a lot of cases. So like if say your opponent check raises with a high frequency on the flop and turn with their two pair and their sets in a specific scenario, well, if you get to the river and you haven't been check raised yet, and this is the way that player structures their value, well, naturally they don't have a ton of value in that spot. So you can go ahead and pull the trigger and pull off a successful bluff. So the bluff webinar is mostly focused on spots where players incorrectly structure their value range. And then we exploit that through big bluffs on the river effectively. Understood. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, Where they're capped in some previous street. Yeah. So 
Are you going to do future webinars and classes like that? Did you enjoy it? Do you think this is going to be a trend for you? Oh, I enjoyed it. I think that it's a good way to create something that adds value to the podcast audience and the listeners and generates revenue for me. So I think it's a win-win for both parties. So yeah, the plan is to do to do more of them in the future. And to go back to the physical tell thing, I think physical tells are super useful in high pressure spots where people are fairly uncomfortable. Online, we'd say that a river is polarized, right? Like villains polarized to the nuts or nothing. In a live setting, if you can catch a tell that is reliable, well, then all of a sudden, when you start looking at how this villain is polarized, the answer to your decision just becomes 100% clear because of this extra data point that you're taking into consideration. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And what do you think is the most underrated poker tile? Like one that people don't give enough attention to? I don't know. So I'm reading Maria Konnikova's book recently. Mm -hmm. I'm uh, 70% of the way, and she's going really deep into physical tells and talking about the way you, you cap your cards, right? With your chip, the way that you hold your hands and your body language. I just, it's hard to say that one physical tell is more underrated. It's you're, you're just taking it as a data point that you integrate into your decision-making process. And for some people, it could be some, you know, it could be a completely different physical tell than other people, but it's just observing and looking at it as a data point, like, okay, like, when this player, you know, specifically, if I could go back in my poker career, back in probably 2005, I was playing on the Boat to Nowhere where I started playing live poker. I was playing against a guy and he had a physical tell where he would threateningly reach for his chips. He played many pots and he would threateningly reach for his chips whenever he was weak or had the bottom of his range, a marginal hand. And for like a three or four hour session, every time he did that, I would raise and bet and just apply max pressure on this guy. And he just folded every time. And, and I think like from an early, from the earliest stages of my career, I've always been more interested in the human element and taking advantage of people who have habits and fall into patterns that you can take advantage of because we're human beings, right? Like we're not, we're not random in almost any way. So when you focus on that, to me, it's just, it's more powerful than really even focusing on the analytical, pio, mathematical side of it. It's just like, maybe there's not one that applies to every single person in, in the population you're playing against. But number one, if you're playing against recreational players, they're more likely to be valid against more inexperienced players. So if somebody's staring at you, Typically, if they're recreational, it's a sign of weakness because they're trying to intimidate, they're trying to act strong. And going back to like the Pareto principle, right? Like 80% of our profits at the poker table come from 20% of the players. So really focusing on the things that recreational players do with a reg- on a regular basis that give away that they're at the bottom of their range, that's what I would focus on and try to dive deep, understand the why, and uh, use those in my thought processes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's so important to just pay attention, right? Which is, it seems like the main theme of Maria's book. Um, what is what is the law of fragility before we move on from the, the the bluffing and coaching work that you do? So it's a term that I coined that after the Matt Hunt interview, 
I realized the power of language and integrating good language into your poker strategy and how it resonates with you. And so I started looking at spots that I, that I was regularly taking advantage of. And then I found patterns in what was happening. And so the law of fragility, <laughs> I can't really say exactly the definition of the law of fragility or the people that just bought the webinar will be pissed that I let the cat out of the bag publicly. But basically, it was a methodology when I have initiative that guided my bluffing frequencies that I was using on a regular basis that I thought, wow, this is actually really powerful and something that I could teach people that I think would just bring massive value to their game. That's great. And you know, fragility and fragile is just such a great word. It's so specific and it almost has a sense of onomatopoeia, if I pronounce that wrong, right? <laughs> Where yeah. the, the word itself feels like it could like crumble, but it's also very pretty at the same time. I agree. Um, so I, I couldn't, I, I saw that and I couldn't help but ask you about it. Um, I love language and I love um, talking with Matt Hunt about that as well. And I, I find it uh, fascinating that the, I, this idea that if we have a word for something, then we can execute it and see it more quickly. Exactly. So in chess, there are all sorts of words for these tactics that the smaller the word is or the smaller the phrasing, in, in my view, makes it easier to see. Right. So sometimes I get frustrated when there's like a tactical motif in chess that doesn't really have a, a quick name, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, and exactly. And I think the same thing is true in poker. And it sounds like you found some words that might be useful for people. I find it weird. Poker is very weird because why do we have under the gun? Like I think about this a lot. Why does under the gun always mean first to act when you're playing six max under the gun? And when you're playing nine max under the gun, it's two separate positions. You're playing against eight opponents versus playing against five component opponents, but they're both called under the gun. Like, I just think about how the way we structure language in poker, it's, it's kind of weird. I think we probably could have done a better job over the years as far as differentiating like, yeah, this under the gun means one thing, but then another under the gun means a totally different thing. And then under the gun plus one, if we're going to call it that at six max, obviously means something different than under the gun plus one at nine max. So yeah, I think we could have, we could improve the way that folks learn in poker just by improving the language, the way we talk about scenarios, making them more concrete. Yeah, exactly. Something that takes you a sentence to explain that keeps coming up, there should just be a word for it. And as for the under the gun thing, I know what you mean. Like strategically, it seems like a worthless phrase because you can't really conflate the under the gun range in six max with nine max. You always qualify I, I, it, right? But I would manage, you have to qualify, which just makes you take more words. Exactly. That's annoying. But I feel like maybe the reason is because it's just a way to speed up the game live. Like, you know, if you're aware that you're under the gun, it's like, you know, that you have to like immediately make a decision. Sure. So that's my defense of the phrase. I, I think. What would That's make more, the real point. Yeah, like, yeah. Go, what, go, go, go. <laughs> what would make more sense is that we use the small blind as one and the big blind is two. And then the next person to act is like three, right? So we're in the three seat. Um, we're acting. We're, we're the three. Actually, no, that doesn't make sense. Let me, I thought about it. That's really have interesting to, though. You'd have yeah. to go backwards. You'd have to go backwards. So like you know, if you're nine, your opening range for nine is different than your opening range for six. 
your opening range for five is different than your opening range for six. So like if you're memorizing ranges and you're like, oh, I'm memorizing my under the gun range. Well, just memorize the nine, the range that you open with as nine. And that's going to be different than the range that you open with as six. So like in a spot where you're telling somebody a hand history, you're like, okay, so I raise, I open at five. You know exactly what that means, right? There, you, you open um, and then there's going to be three players left to act and then the two blinds. So like these, these ranges could be just set in stone and it would just simplify the whole process. That's super logical. My only beef with that is that I think that, you know, sometimes it gets a little confusing when you use numbers for things because there's so many other numbers. Cause you've got like the bet sizes, you've got the Annie and the big blind and the seat number and the table number. And now you're adding a second layer of numbers. Yeah. That said, I do still like where you're going. I'm just kind of giving no, no, playing the devil's it's, advocate here. It's clear that the idea is not entirely fleshed out and I haven't yeah. moved forward with it. However, I do think there should be a concrete way to do it, right? It's like, what are you doing tonight? I'm working on my under the gun range. Well, that could mean many, many different things. Or I'm just working on my range as playing number six. Uh, that makes a lot more sense to me than the other way. Yeah. But we got to name it something better. <laughs> yeah, and that you're a nerd. Just kidding. I no, think no, I love studying poker. I do fine. enjoy. I, I am a nerd. That's that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like. I do enjoy studying poker. So I don't. I don't hate on it at all. Uh, so I wanted to ask you and just kind of pivot to your podcast because. There's so many questions I have about all these great guests that you've had and how you've done so much in such a quick time. Uh, you know, but before we do that, we've talked in the past about bringing you on my own show, The Grid, during its 169 episode span. And we even picked out a hand, but you also have another hand that I want you to talk to me about today that kind of symbolizes your approach to poker. Yeah. So. This was fairly early in my career, maybe a couple of years in. Queen five suited it was. So the flop is 10, five, deuce, rainbow. So I flop middle pair, and I'm paying close attention to the players that I'm playing against. This is a habit that is just ingrained in me from day one. I, I, I attribute a lot of that to my friend making me read Mike Caro's book of tells and really focusing on the human element of poker beyond just the strategic stuff. because. Maybe it was a product of the time period too, where we didn't have these super high-powered tools to analyze poker hands. Really, all we had was ourselves and our ability to gather information. So, like how somebody reacts to a board is just ingrained in me. It, it's something that when somebody sees a flop goes down, they react to it. And if you're not paying attention, you lose that reaction forever. You you lose it as a data point. So. I'm always paying close attention. The guy last to act, it checked around to him and he could not have been more, he could not have been less interested in the board. Like he was watching sports on TV, right? Just no thought at all about his action. And he just like snap checks. And I'm like, okay, so this guy has, you know, he has nothing. Um, the turn's a nine and I opt to bet out to try to take the pot down with my third pair. Everybody folds the player last to act and you know maybe i bet 80 into 100 and he goes ahead and raises it up to like 
350 or 400. It was like a big sized raise. And like, just logically using deductive reasoning, I look at the board, nine, 10, five deuce. If villain had pocket nines, so he turns a set, he's actually going to consider betting the flop, right? Once it Mm -hmm, checks to him, he's going to consider stabbing. So I can eliminate nines. I don't think he has nine, five. That doesn't make a ton of sense. Even with nine, five, he's going to consider betting the flop. Um, Top two pair doesn't make sense. Even a set doesn't really make sense. He could check back a set. Like that's possible that he checks back a set, but he's going to think about it, right? He's going to, you can see, you're going to be able to see the wheels turning in his head. So like when he raises here, it was just pretty crystal clear to me that he had queen jack. And that's really all he ever has here is he just turns a straight draw, goes from no interest to highly interested and raised me. Um, And, you know, I, I figured that out on the fly. I called and the river was a blank. I can't even remember what the river was, but didn't improve his hand. And he bet like 1100 um, and I called and took the pot down. And I, I remember specifically what he said after the hand and his exact words were, if I knew you would have had that, I would have just bet more. And that always, <laughs> it always made me feel a little happy inside because like he was just looking at the relative strength of my hand without taking into consideration the fact that he had no value in his range. and like. I felt like I owned him and he had no idea that he just got owned and like, he just wanted to invest more money. And really in my mind, it's like, okay, you could have invested your whole stack. It didn't matter. Like I knew exactly what you had. So that was a spot that was like, yeah, I'm going to stick with, you know, my radar, my ability to use deductive reasoning and understand people to lead my decision-making process. And so that's something that I've really stuck to is my intuition, my gut, in navigating these situations versus leaning on a more analytical style. I love it. And like that, that comment also is really interesting because I think that somebody could make that and actually still have self-awareness. It could just be like an immediate instinct to avoid humiliation or to temper humiliation of getting your bluff called by such a weekend. But it is important to note that you know, you need to be reflective and self-aware of what you're giving off when you get hero called like that. But it's not necessarily just a, a strategic failing or a bad size that you could have just given everything away. Because if you don't have friends that are watching you play, you're never going to have anybody tell you that. So you need to be aware. Well, the path diverges, right? Like you can look at it one of two ways. You can look at it like he did in believing that I made a mistake by calling the river with third pair, or you can reflect and think about it logically how, and ask the question, how did he know? Why did they do that? Why did my bet get called here when I think it should have went through? And then sort of reverse engineer the why. What must I have seen that gave me that information so that you can play better in the future, right? Like most people blame other people for things, uh, big pots that they lose and um, just things that they consider to be quote unquote bad poker. But really, if somebody does something that's out of the norm and you get crushed and you don't understand the why, really think about it. Dive deep and look at it as a learning experience. Because if he learned from that hand, he probably can make money over the course of his poker career just using what he learned in order to play better in the future, right? But instead, if you don't learn, you don't learn the lesson, you just lose a massive pot and then you continue making the mistake forever. And that's just not good for your overall win rate. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, now there is the other side, somebody who can almost be too hard on themselves in a way that becomes very results oriented, that they think they're being soul read when really just their opponent was in the mood to call. So, uh, but, but probably there's more along the other side that is looking, looking to blame things, not on themselves. Right. Cause that's part of what keeps poker. So the dream so alive for so many people that we always think about the best versions of ourselves when we assess our play. And in general, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing because it's hard to do anything in life to keep up the initiative and optimism it is to be serious about something for a sustained period of time. So I think the fact that we have this optimism is often a good thing, but then needs to be tempered. For sure. Just maybe there was nothing that that led somebody to do something completely out of the norm. Maybe they were just in a bad mood that day or in a weird mood. Who knows what? But it's still worthy of investigation, especially if that player is a relatively good player who's thinking at a high level. Then, okay, like what must they know here, right? Like we, we me and Thomas got into another hand uh, at WPT Thunder Valley where a good player, I can't remember who it was, but somebody that Thomas was like, oh, that's a run at once elite coach that I really, really respect. And he limped the button with Jack 10 off and they were six handed, right? Okay. This is a spot where somebody does something. We don't understand why they're doing it in a tournament setting. So let's think about the benefits of limping here. If they're going to be executing that strategy, it's a spot where we can learn. So I just, I'm always keeping an open mind to try to learn in spots where that confused me, especially if it's by a player that I respect that I think is playing at a relatively high level. And sometimes they just make a mistake, right? You analyze it and you objectively look, okay, that just wasn't very good. And you, you just move on. You don't learn anything. But really what you're looking for is to unlock deviations that you didn't see before that can help you moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is important to note that like sometimes things are just, you know, random occurrences, like even the best players in the world can just make errors and therefore overanalyzing it. It can be just a dangerous rabbit hole to go, go down. Uh, but I, I do really enjoy that story. It's a great encapsulation of how in multi-way pots, sometimes people let their guard down and that gives you a lot of opportunities and you were able to take full advantage of this, just having the random queen jack off suit and not on a, on this board that you're going to fold to a bet. Um, of course you're disinterested and you kind of assume somebody's going to bet. And then suddenly you get interested, but you can't do that in poker. Right. You can't, you can't give that away and then take it back. Right. <laughs> I think multi-ways pots are by the way, understanding how to navigate multi-way pots, going back to the Tom to one hand that I think is just incredible. Focus energy for your live player on navigating multi-way pots. They come up very, very often. And a lot of times there's just tons of free information that you're probably missing that can guide you in your decision-making process. So I, I would highly suggest people try to understand how to navigate multi-way pots because it's just, it's something that if you do it very well, you can have a fairly big edge when they pop up. I totally agree, Brad. And I think that sounds like a topic for a future webinar for you. Because one thing I noticed that when you talk to people today, because the study tools have become so powerful with heads up solvers and with heads up charts and with like a lot of different, not as much heads up charts, but okay, like DTO solvers, all these different tools that will help you get better in heads up spots. A lot of people are increasing their comfort in heads up spots and kind of their multi-way game might be left behind a little bit. 
and yeah. their their confidence in multi-way might lag behind as well. So what happens, that- you can see this transition, right? From like a tournament player, when they play cash, they're uncomfortable navigating post-flop. So they're more likely to extend themselves pre-flop because that's where they're comfortable. So what happens is, you know, they'll end up playing like a massive four or five bet pot with a hand like jacks or tens because they don't know how to call and then navigate. They're not confident in their decision-making process. So they overplay a hand in the spot where they just get snapped off by aces or kings. And I think that that's probably the biggest mistake that tournament players make when they transition to cash is, okay, I don't know how to navigate post-flop really, so I'm just going to go ahead and squeeze here, squeeze here really big and like jam to five bets with like, jam to four bets with ace jack off or something where like maybe in a tournament it's okay but in a cash game you're just going to get drilled and uh yeah it's just being comfortable navigating post-flop and multi-way pots is just it's huge and in a cash game setting especially if you're playing live you got to get in there and you got to feel comfortable and you got to feel confident because you can make a ton of money in those spots um who do you think are the heroes of multi-way play um like people, people that, um, players that people could kind of try to emulate or look up their hands online. Are there any like absolute favorites that you have? Not off the top of my head. I can't really, I can't really think about it off the, or I don't, nothing jumps off the page. I mean, obviously the Tom Dwan hand is a spot where he specifically navigated extremely well. That pot, by the way, started out on the flop eight ways. So <laughs> like everybody called pre-flop. So that's a really good example of navigating a multi-way pot and just using, you know, using things to leverage to your advantage. Like Barry Greenstein in that pot, he raised from under the gun and the flop's 10 deuce deuce. You have queen 10 next to act. Well, Barry just doesn't have any deuces in his range. So how do you use that against, against him in a multi-way pot? And, you know, Tom Dwan opted to raise and run a multi-street bluff by repping something that Barry really couldn't have. And I think that's pretty cool. Like you can use multi-way pots to do just that thing. You know, you can, if you think that somebody's calling fairly light on a board, you can overcall that shuts them both down so that you can bluff and get folds on the river. It's just, yeah, there are really cool things you can do to leverage human behavior um, in those spots. Now I talked in the intro already about how your volume when it comes to great content is, is really impressive. Um, but I want to kind of break it down now for you and ask you some questions about your your favorites and different interesting learning moments you had from all of the work you've done on podcasts. Um, so I'm going to start with asking you, which interview were you the most nervous before um, when uh, hosting one of your episodes of Chasing Poker Greatness? The most nervous was by far Aliyah Jadabji because she had mentioned on Twitter that she had been depressed. Uh, she was dealing with cancer, cancer diagnosis. And she tweeted that she had gone into her shell and today's the day that she's going to really talk about things and put her heart out there. And that for me was extreme pressure to serve her in the best way that I possibly could. That was the most pressure that I felt before any interview, bar none. And do you feel like the pressure... Um, is comparable to anything else? Like, for instance, a difficult poker session or difficult poker opponent or high stakes moment? Not really. I, don't, I think in poker, what happens 
uh, over my career is in these moments, a lot of times when you get to the point to make a decision in the decision tree, there's often clarity and there, there's less stress that I feel. It's like I'm trying to absorb all of the information, internalize it into my thought process and make the best decision that I can. So oftentimes I don't even feel nervous when I get involved in big spots um, with a lot of money on the line. That said, I've said it a few times on my podcast, when my friends are at the same table and they get involved in a massive pot, I'm often way more nervous than if I were there instead, right? Because uh, it's, uh, you don't know what they have and the decisions up in the air you don't know what information that they're using to make their their decision so i think that's um that's when i feel nervous at the poker table but it's on another level when you're talking about facilitating somebody sharing their story that means a lot to them and it's important and you want to make sure that you do a good job you know that that's always where i'm going to feel most nervous just as a human being right like if i'm going to do something that is important to you I'm going to feel nervous because really that nervousness is just energy. It's energy that I'm going to use to perform at a higher level than I would if I were, you know, just chill, calm, lackadaisical. So I'm grateful for that nervous energy because I think it's going to allow me to ask some questions, see some spots in the interview that otherwise maybe I wouldn't see. So yeah, that's the, to me, it's, I'm way more nervous before the interviews. And was there a, specific moment where you felt like that nervous energy um, allowed you to um, get deeper into Aaliyah's story. Now, I do remember when that came out, you mentioned it as one of your favorite interviews ever. Um, I, so I'm based on what you're saying now, I'm, I'm gathering that it still is. Sure. And I, I can't look back to a specific moment. Like there were some, certainly looking back on it, I feel like there were some spots where I misplayed, where there was a moment where she was talking, like I was almost on the verge of tears, right? And instead of being more vulnerable, I kind of deflected, like, because I guess I felt like uncomfortable navigating through, you know, this interaction with somebody who I I barely know who's upset and crying and then I'm upset. And it was more like, okay, let's, let's uh, move on to another thing. And I I, I wish I would have went deeper there. So, but that's a, that's a whole nother level of interview, right? Like, let's be real here. Like, I love my podcast. I can talk with people about poker all day long. Um, the stakes are way different when you're talking about life situations and big moments like that, like like it was for Aaliyah. So, yeah, well, um, she is she is tremendous, just a great um, ambassador for the game. I I am a friend of Aaliyah's, so um, I'm I'm happy that you uh, put so much into that and that she was able to. Uh, get her story out on your, on somebody, on a platform that somebody cared so much about. That's really great. Me as a person, I love the, I love my guests. I love the people that I interact with. I love my students, right? I want to serve them in the best way possible. And I really take that seriously. And that's, um, yeah, that, that's where the nervousness comes from and just wanting to serve people in the best way that I can. Yeah, absolutely. Which which interview left you feeling the most like buzzed or inspired afterward? So many of them. Probably either Matt Hunt or Adam Creek. Those were the two where Matt Hunt talked about language. And that was something that being in poker forever and never having a discussion about language before, that was like a holy shit, light bulb goes off eureka moment for me. 
was like, wow, that, that is powerful. And I'm going to invest some time and energy into thinking about that. And Adam Creek, you know, he's a former Olympic gold medalist. He's a high performance coach. And just some of the things that we talked about that weren't poker specific, but were related, for instance, like the placebo effect and how that can raise your level of play, how you should lean into the placebo effect. Um, I think that was extremely important, a, a huge takeaway from that conversation. So basically the ones that leave me buzzed afterwards are the ones where I come away with something that I'm like, holy shit, I can implement this in my life. It's going to make my life better and it's going to make the viewers' lives better. Like that's what gets me pumped up. Yeah, that's that's great. I mean, I it's it's an amazing feeling to that inspiration. I by the way, one of my favorites of yours was um your interview with Darren Elias. I actually listened to it, you know, for research because Darren doesn't do that many interviews and I was interviewing him as well for the grid and it was a <laughs> it was it was intimidatingly good. I was like, wow, this one you you did a really great job in uh bringing out his his personality um and you know i i did some work with darren in the past and we're on good terms and you know i you don't know him in person do you i don't so yeah it was particularly impressive that because it felt like you guys were had that easy rapport yeah that that's a great thing too is like for most of my guests it's it can be a little bit nervous in the beginning and then it just turns into a conversation right everybody's relaxed and you can dig deep i did ask darren beforehand if he was cool talking about you know his family getting robbed. I didn't want to bring that up if he wasn't comfortable talking about it, but he was, he was fine with it. And I, I think that did make for a great interview. And the big takeaway from that was, you know, solvers and RTA and the doom of online poker in the future. Yeah. So some dark, some dark topics, but you know, <laughs> you know it's, it's good not to, to shy away from the good stuff. You've heard me talk early and often about how improving your awareness while you're playing cards so that you make better decisions in the moment and notice trouble spots that merit deeper consideration is one of the most valuable things you can do to make more money on the felt. In my conversation with the only four-time WPT main event champion ever, Darren Elias, he told me that his ability to shut out all of the distractions in the world and fully focus on making great decision after great decision is his superpower he most attributes to his success. And you cannot improve your awareness at the tables without being fully present. When you learn how to stay fully in the moment on the green felt, you can finally have a clear path to becoming the absolute best version of yourself, which leads me to Jason Sue. Jason is one of the foremost authorities on the planet when it comes to playing poker with presence. As a matter of fact, he even wrote the book on it. Here's a direct quote from Nick Howard at Poker Detox on Jason's ability to help you stay focused. Quote, Jason's work is a new paradigm in poker and performance. End quote. And these aren't just empty words. Nick has put his money where his mouth is by hiring Jason to coach up the Poker Detox crew. And as a loyal listener of Chasing Poker Greatness, you know by now that I would not be promoting anything I didn't 100% believe would improve your poker skills and your life. So if you want to master your emotions and perform at your peak with presence while doing battle in the arena, you'd be doing yourself a grave disservice if you didn't check out Jason's work at PokerWithPresence.com. One final time, that's PokerWithPresence.com. So I feel like embedded in your answers, you have a lot of great tips for people who are kind of getting into content, 
or interviews, but is there anything like um, more explicit, like advice to new content creators, whether they're sometimes inviting a friend onto their stream or, you know, doing like bonus podcasts to their YouTube channel that you have for, you know, getting into the good stuff? So basically, look at it from the perspective of your viewer. Look at it from the perspective of your audience. And you're their proxy for whatever it is that you create. So as the interviewer, if I'm bored while my guest is talking, my audience is likely bored as well. If there's something that I'm curious about where I would like to go deeper, my audience is probably curious about that as well and would also like to go deeper. And pay attention to physical tells, right? It's it's almost like a poker game. When I'm interviewing somebody and their voice goes up, it gets excited, you can hear that, you can read into that, and you realize that's something they're passionate about, that's something that matters to them, let's go there. Even if the plan was to go someplace completely different, when you hear that passion, that's where the good stuff really comes from. And so paying attention, you know, just looking at it like a, like a poker hand, paying attention to your guest, what excites them diving down there. If you get bored, recognize that and maybe ask a question. If you have a, if, if you have something you're super curious about, don't be afraid of interrupting somebody to ask that question. Because sometimes like I've just done for the last few minutes, <laughs> they'll talk for six or seven minutes. It's almost like juggling when you're the interviewer, you have the questions that you have written down. So you like want to get into it, but then you get focused on what they say and you forget it or you forget to come back. So like, don't be afraid to interrupt people while they're talking. If you have a high impact question that really just needs to be asked, because I think, again, that's serving your audience, that's serving your guests so that you can make the most out of this interaction for everybody. Yeah. And, you know, since you're the editor, you know, you can always, you can always go back and make it look like you weren't interrupting them if you need to. So, I, actually I think outsource. that's great advice. <laughs> I outsource my, the editing and the production for the most part, but I did edit like my first 30, which for the other podcast that I did. And that's a great learning experience, right? Like you can, you start seeing the places where maybe you missed a spot where maybe you could have went deeper. You start seeing where the voice is raising and you're not diving deeper. And so like for just practice and repetition wise, I would highly suggest people edit their own thing, listen back to it because you know, that's game tape. That's the thing you can listen to and improve on your process and get better at your craft. So don't be lazy. Think about it from the audience's perspective and continue to learn and grow and try to try to do the best job that you can. Yeah. And being a great podcaster can help you be a better conversationalist in real life. Because obviously some of these are just skills to being, you know, somebody that people can't wait to talk to because you ask good questions and you listen and care about whether somebody's interested in the conversation or not. Right. Absolutely. The biggest, another thing too, is stories. Like if you can get people talking in dialogue, telling stories, then you have done a good job because human beings were constructed to resonate with story. Um, That's just how we're built to make sense of the world that we live in. So guiding people to describing their feelings, to telling stories in dialogue, those are things that can really, you know, bring your, your piece of content to the next level. Absolutely. Yeah. That's one of the reasons I, I created the poker grid with that idea that I was going to force people to tell a story in the first 20 minutes of the podcast. Yeah. It's, it's hard. (laughs) forcing people to tell a story, to be honest, like, because you're put on the spot, you're afraid, 
it's not something that we do all of the time. So some people are just naturally better at it than other people. So I found that it, it is difficult. Like in the beginning, I tried to do the same thing to get people to remember like a highlight reel of their life to tell one of their favorite stories to kind of open the show. And folks struggled. <laughs> the struggle was real. So it had to be more organic than, uh, than preparing it beforehand. Yeah, it is hard. I mean, I've never been that good at that. Like my family, I feel like we are very conversational and like everybody has a good sense of humor. They're good with like witty one-liners and stuff, but we're not like a huge storytelling family where like you sit down at the dinner table and give like a five minute story. Like, and by the way, that, that has like a high rate of failure too, because if it's boring, then you're really going to be stuck for three minutes. Oh yeah, but I do screwed. notice that there are some families where that's just more part of the family culture that people just sit around and just take the the mic for longer than would be typical in my family. Like it's much more, you know, pass the ball around a lot, right? Sure. Yeah, I, it's uh, it's nerve wracking, and you can screw up, and you can bomb, and it can go really, really badly. So these are typically areas where we shy away from as human beings. But I do think that, you know, at the end of the day, stories are the end all be all improving the, the podcasting experience. And however you can get people to tell those stories, just make that your goal. And like, don't focus on you talking a ton, let them lead the conversation and, you know, dive deep, ask them how they felt, ask them what they were thinking. These are, these are just imperative. You know, you read, a, you read a book, like you hear all the characters' thoughts, you see all the dialogue right? Like that's what makes a good book is seeing the dialogue. I noticed in your podcast and the guests that you have, you've done a really good job of getting a, a, a ton of diversity, right? Because I mean, obviously poker is not always as diverse as we'd like it to be, but it does have a lot of great characters of all different backgrounds, genders. Um, how did you do that? And was that intentional or did it just kind of happen? It was not intentional. It just kind of happened. It was, you know, let's just bring people onto the podcast that I think are going to be awesome. And that was really, it was just like finding those folks and reaching out to them and getting them to come on the show. I mean, it's, yeah, it, it wasn't really intentional, but it is something that, you know, I think about like, how do I get more females on the show? Right. How do I get more ethnically diverse? How do I get those people to come on and tell their story? Because they're important and they're amazing human beings, right? Like anybody that can make it in poker who is outside of the norm, like they're just going to be a fucking awesome poker player and an awesome human being, and, you know, because they have succeeded having some obstacles in their way that maybe not everybody does. So I think that at the end of the day too, you know, it makes for a more compelling conversation. Oh, I absolutely agree. I mean, I think you're spot on there that, and even if they're, even if it, if it's somebody who wasn't at the top of their game, just like the experience that they have is going to be more um, interesting a lot of the times because you're going to hear about the struggle and the different perspective. Yeah. Um, because in poker, we, I feel like in one way, it's a, it's a sport that anyone can enter and compare to something like investing, it's going to be a lot more approachable because you might need a bank, a small bankroll rather than, you know, years of working and finance and, and being credentialed and having a huge amount of capital to um, trade with, right? Whereas um, in poker, you know, I guess if you're playing online, you could start with, 
as little as a few hundred bucks. Live, you obviously need a lot more uh, or you need to find like a, a backer. Uh, so it's, it, it, it's open to everyone, but then at the same time, it's definitely difficult for people without a safety net, women, especially with kids, to um, get those hours in and that volume in in order to be great as you, you know. I'm passionate about a few things. And one, you know, po- growing the game of, like, I love the game of poker. I think it's a beautiful game. I think it's an amazingly complex game. It's a game of human beings. And I've always been in love with the game of poker. As far as the poker community goes, like, I, I do believe we could have done a better job of being more inclusive making people's experience when they venture to the poker table in a live setting better um, so that the game does grow. And I think it's a failing that there are so few women that are involved in poker compared to men. And we need to do a better job. Uh, And ethnical, ethnic diversity is another area where we can do a better job as well, I think. Yeah, absolutely. It's hard. It's difficult because you're definitely coming up against the structure of poker and the structure of society in ways in which they don't necessarily match with the um, incredibly intensive hours that poker takes, right? Especially, I mean, particularly for live poker, I guess that's where you really need to make the distinction from live poker and online poker. But I, I agree with you that it's it's really important. I want to say something that makes me sad too. And this is only came to me through reflection. It was after I interviewed DGAF the second time, you know, we were talking about Jungle Man, the whole Jungle Man saga and how neither of us really cared, right? How like it didn't, I didn't care that Jungle Man was ghosting on some shady app and Bill Perkins, you know, got effectively cheated, right? Like it just wasn't high up on my priority list of things to care about. And I reflected on that. And I did think like, I wish it offended me. I wish that online ghosting was offensive to me because it should be, but I've just seen so much that it's no longer offensive. And so that kind of made me sad that it, that it didn't um, affect me in the way that I felt like it probably should have and the way that it affected Bill Perkins, right? Because he was, you know, you could tell he was shook, right? He, he was, the, the experience left him shook that people were ghosting that he trusted to play poker with and everything was fair. And that to me was like, wow, he looks at it from like this innocent perspective of these shenanigans, you know, being an outlier happening. And I wish I had that perspective as well. And so that made me sad. And I really wish that we could clean the game up and that we could, you know, make the game more fair and more inclusive for everybody. And I I always will talk about, you know, real-time assistance and botting because I think it's an existential threat to the online poker world. Um, but the reality is, I just want there to be better security. I want poker sites to care about these sort of things happening and to put measures in place to prevent them. So like that that did make me sad that I was just kind of, eh, whatever. Somebody ghosted. Like, yeah, of course they did. This This is a thing that happens all the time, right? It's not surprising. Well, that's fascinating because you talk a lot about going with your gut. But I think this is an example where... Your intellect is telling you that it's important, like cheating is terrible or ghosting is a terrible force in the industry. And by the way, I didn't do a lot of research into that either. So if I'm getting anything wrong, uh, you know, I I don't know the facts of the case, but I, um, I feel like the intellectual saying like, it's terrible to ghost, it's terrible to cheat, but then like the emotional being like, well, I'm jaded. I don't care about this anymore. 
And that's a spot where, you, you know, you have to go with the rational over the emotional. Like if you were at all a decision maker in the process, right? Well, it's just like, it's predatory behavior. It's not good. But I, my, I'm so hardened to these type of things. To give you a few examples of like things that I've dealt with as an online poker player. I mean, I played on the Asian apps, right? You win too much money on them, you get kicked out. They just kick you out. Like sometimes they'll accuse you of collusion and you don't even get paid. One time I got kicked out of an Asian club to an app where people were super using. And so I got kicked out from one, funneled into another where I got cheated out of like ten dollars or $15,000. And you just experience so much of this stuff as a pro where all the forces are against you. And then you see a spot like Jungle Man where it was like, okay, maybe he doesn't have access to any of these apps. Maybe everybody else is ghosting as well. Like, I don't know what's happening here, but really like you give somebody a free roll to make a few hundred thousand dollars, they're just going to take it as a poker player because they're going to look at that as a good opportunity, regardless of if they're ghosting or whatever it is. That's just the nature of it because there are a lot of forces that go against us that prevent us from, you know, effectively making a living playing this game. Well, not everybody would, I'm sure. But yeah, um, I know what you're saying, that it's that it, it, it can be rather commonplace. Absolutely. Yeah, like it's just poker's aspirational to me. And the aspiration is to be a professional um, or to be the best version of yourself that you can be. And ever since Full Tilt Poker crashed, platforms have gone away from the aspirational aspect of it to focus more on, you know, other things. And I think that's just a big disservice to the poker community as a whole. We need to celebrate the people that aspire to be great, that claw their way upwards through the ranks and are able to shine as superstars. Like that, that's something that should be celebrated by all the poker platforms. We shouldn't want to be squashing them. We shouldn't want to be like, okay, this player's winning too much. Let's kick them out. Like let's celebrate them and go from there but that's just my opinion it appears to me as if you know platforms disagree with me and that's that's their decision but that's just my fundamental belief as somebody that's been in poker for 16 years and you know when you when you talk about getting cheated in your career and i i did listen uh to your account of getting cheated on this chinese poker app in um sky's podcast yeah i believe it's called the smart study podcast smart poker study yeah yeah, uh, that emotionally, it's so devastating to be cheated, isn't it? Uh, can you take us through like how that feels when you have that moment of realization that that happened to you? I was honestly vindicated. <laughs> I was relieved when I realized that I had been cheated because I was playing against a table full of complete nincompoops who are like, playing 80 slash three and never three betting and just beating my brains in every single day for a month. It was like, Oh my God, there's a reason why I can't beat these guys. It's because they're cheating. So I felt actually pretty relieved that I didn't have to deal with the stress of figuring out what on earth is happening. Have I lost it? Am I just a horrible player now? Like what is the deal? So that was, you know, there was relief was the number one emotion that I felt when I uncovered it. And then secondary. Yeah, no, that that makes sense actually. That that is a uh, not what I think. Usually, people are like angry or upset, but it kind of makes sense in this context because as a poker player, if you're not beating the games, that's the uh, the the worst 
goal, I mean, the worst outcome than just losing a little bit of money. Yeah. Uh, so you've interviewed over 60 people already for Chasing Poker Greatness. Who are your dream guests? My dream guest, Eric Seidel is like number one on the list. I think he, he doesn't do podcast interviews. I've never heard him interviewed on a podcast. Maybe he does. Maybe he doesn't. I don't know. But it's very rare. Um, I have no connection to him other than Maria Konnikova. And I just think that he's one of the greatest of all time in my mind, maybe number one on the greatest of all time with his longevity, ability to play high rollers this deep into his career to transition from beating the masses in the 80s and the 90s and the early 2000s to beating this, the supernovas of the world of poker. That to me personifies greatness and he doesn't brag. You know, he's not, doesn't have an inflated ego of himself and all of these things. Like he, he would be my dream guest. I think that's a good answer. Yeah. I, 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 for some reason I thought like you were just going to say Phil Ivy because a lot, that that's kind of like the obvious answer since he doesn't do a lot of interviews, but yeah, it's true. I mean, of course he was memorably portrayed in Maria Konnikova's recent book, the biggest bluff. So you get more insight into his, his inner personality and workings, but you're right. He's not usually on the media circuit and, I wonder the relationship with that and his success that he doesn't get bogged down in too much extra stuff around the poker world. It seems like he's got this rich life outside poker, which um, allows him to stay balanced and happy. And then when in poker, he just kind of plays. Yeah. Maria said that he's shy. He's a very shy person. And I think too, like when he didn't get to play live poker for a little while, I, I can't remember what year it was thinking back to the book, but he didn't play for a few months. And he's like, Hey, I need to get in there. I need to play some sessions online at some smaller stakes because he was afraid that people had caught up to him, that he had stagnated in his learning and his ability just after not really playing for a few months. And I think that like the way that he approaches the game from the humility aspect, from, you know, going back to the queen Jack hand, like tying everything together of humbly asking, what did I do wrong here? What could I do better in the future? Is there an upgrade to be found? Like when you kind of remove your ego and start questioning all of these things that you do, you often grow the most. And I think that that's, you know, one of the, one of the ingredients to his secret sauce is that he's just always learning, doesn't have a massive ego and embraces humility. And on the other side, which is the guest that you've had who said yes very quickly and you were kind of pinching yourself over it? Are you putting me on the spot, huh? I mean, Fedor was a good get. Fedor, it was cool having Fedor say yes to come on the podcast, which probably wouldn't have happened had I not had Elliot Rowe on and asked him for referrals and specifically mentioned Fedor because I knew that they had a close relationship. So it was pretty cool talking to Fedor Holtz. He's <laughs> intimidatingly intelligent. It's always tough navigating with people who are intimidatingly intelligent. Matt Berkey's another one that, and Nick Howard, where you really have to pay attention to, you know, facilitate a great conversation. So I, I think that you know Fedor, Fedor was really cool. It was really cool getting him. He's the one that comes to mind right now. Where do you like to see your, your podcast and your poker career in a year from now? 
by podcast career, I would like to go to daily episodes. I would like to have a sponsor and I would like to make the lion's share of my income through podcasting so that I can immerse myself into that and move away from the daily grind of playing poker on a daily basis. I think that's where ideally I would be. So right now you're enjoying the podcasting and the research behind it even more than the actual play. Oh, a thousand percent. Um, I love the podcast. I love doing it. I'm excited. Like when a podcast interview ends, you know, you asked me the question of, you know, when I could most remember being most excited, I'm typically very excited when all of them end. Like it's like a, a huge adrenaline bump. Uh, my mind's firing on all cylinders. And so that's what I, what I would like to pursue. I, I've put my time in with poker, right? I play a session, it ends, whether I win or lose, there's not a huge emotional output either way. Um, like maybe there used to be 10 or 15 years ago. But I think at some point too, when it comes to poker, eventually, you know, you get diminishing returns on your study and your learning and your growth and learning and growing and being good at poker was everything to me early in my career. That was what I dedicated my entire life to. And now I don't think it makes as much sense to dedicate my entire life into, you know, getting diminishing returns for all of this energy that I can invest. Understandable. Yeah. Because you've been putting in so many years in poker. It's just funny to think that there are some people who um, have played so little poker in their career that they get the same rush out of like a session of poker because it's I so- envy that. Yeah. I envy that feeling. Yeah. It- that, that, uh, that is an in- incredible space, isn't it? Um, do you ever think that you could get that in poker if you just played like a different game type or you've kind of been been through that as well? It's possible. It's possible. You know, I am a No Limit Hold'em specialist. I've put in time playing PLO. But again, going back to that fear, right? The uh, The ambiguity effect. I know what my hourly rate should be playing No Limit Hold'em. And so... Venturing into uncharted territory like PLO, where you don't really see what your win rate is until you've invested a thousand or two thousand hours, it's just much more comfortable to stick to what you know, what you've experienced over time, especially when poker is your sole income, right? Like when poker is your sole income that pays for life, it can seem very risky switching from No Limit Hold'em to Pot Limit Omaha, for instance, when the fate of your family kind of depends on your results. And PLO is sort of, it's unknowable to you at the time, even though your win rate or my win rate would likely be much higher, my hourly rate, if I invested, you know, a year or two years. So, you know, maybe that's what the podcast will allow me to do, to transition and try more games like PLO, where I'm paying through life for the podcast. So I know I can experiment, I can learn, I can engage my curiosity by trying out some different games and, you know, maybe that would do it for me in the poker sense. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think that is a reason why people often like are unable to transition to different mixed games because they have this hourly and no limit hold'em. And it's not really something that you can play a little bit of no limit hold'em and then also other mixed games on the side. I mean, I know some people do that, but like that's very difficult to kind of manage multiple game types. Yeah, you wow. stick with what you know, right? You, you, you stick with what you know, especially when your family depends on it. I think that's that's the biggest factor is when you're a pro and you have an expectation of amount of money that you need to make every single month, you know what your hourly rate is, you know how many hours you should be playing. When you start throwing variables, like you don't know what the, your win rate is going to be, 
it messes with stuff and introduces more risk than I've ever really been willing to take. You have two daughters and you're happily married. Now, how difficult it is, because I mentioned in the very beginning that you're a very hard worker. How do you uh, manage balancing your, your work and life? So number one, I don't really consider myself that hard of a worker, which is maybe says something about myself. I love doing these shows. Like I do them. It costs me money and time and energy, right? That's how much I love doing them. And I've done them for nine months. So like, I love doing it. I don't really look at it as real work for me. So, you know, I I do release a lot of podcast episodes, but I love it. So, and this is also the reason why I want to fully invest myself into doing it, right? Because I love it so much. Yeah, I, I, so my girls, you know, they come about every other weekend and through the summer. So they're not here all the time. So basically it's, you know, you manage that by improving the quality of time that you get to spend with the people. Because another thing that I've learned in life is that, you know, you can quote unquote spend time with somebody, but it's just being in the same room with them and not engaging with them. So really engaging people. Um, giving people the attention that I think they deserve when it comes to my girls and when it comes to my wife, uh, I think that's just paramount. You know, if you're happy in your personal life, you're going to play poker better. You're going to be able to create better pieces of content. It's like the first domino that affects everything else. And the way that, you know, you make sure you're happy is pay attention to those people. And when they bid for your attention, answer those bids. Don't ignore them. Yeah, that's a, that's great advice because it's oftentimes the opposite that working a lot, it seeps into personal life, but it can also give you inspiration for um, being fully present in your personal life. And it sounds like the latter for you. Yeah. I mean, it's just maximizing the quality, right? Or doing the best that I can. And of course I'm going to fail. Uh, sometimes I will be busy doing something. And, you know, one of them will come up to me and be like, Hey daddy, and ask me a question or just say like, you know, try to engage me about something they're creating, like a world in Roblox, right? Like what they're doing when they're telling you about what they're making, they want you to see, they are, they call it bidding on your attention, right? They're, they're saying, Hey, I'm, I'm doing something that's important to me. Will you come and look at this? And so just having awareness that that's happening, I think is really the first step to improving a lot of relationships in life. Do they play strategy games or card games? Not really, not yet. They're more, you know, Robloxers and uh, Minecrafters and stuff like that. So more of the, the creative aspect of games so far. That's great. That's great though. I mean, I feel like that's such an important part of games. You don't, do you feel like the creative aspect is, you know, underexplored in poker or it's just a, a, a less important part of the game? Oh, it's underexplored for sure. It's way underexplored. And to me, that's the beauty of the game is the creative aspect of the game. When you can take a line that other people just aren't going to take because you have your intuition is guiding you to take to that line being optimal in the moment. Like that to me is it's almost art, right? Like the queen five hand that I talked about earlier in the show where I turn middle pair, like there's no, you know, book for that. There's no, there was nothing other than my own deductive reasoning guiding me through that hand. And 
that to me is what poker is about. When you go outside the norm, you do something creative that people don't expect and you realize an edge. I just love that aspect of poker. If it were just mechanical, like for instance, limit poker is, limit poker is not stimulating to me. It's not engaging. So that to me is everything in poker is being creative and, you know, following your curiosity really. And growing. I feel like growth in poker is very important because even if you're, you know, games are getting tougher, you're not able to play live. Um, even if it's difficult for you to actually grow your um, win rate, there's so many other ways to grow in poker. And it's funny because recently somebody wrote a tweet about chess that intrigued me. It was basically like saying that, I don't know who needs to hear this right now, but you can play chess for, just for enjoyment. You don't have to constantly improve. And I, I read that. And while on one hand, I agreed with it, like, you know, you can get cultural satisfaction and intellectual enrichment without actually being serious about something enough to get better at it. I think there is a reason why poker and chess function as these kind of mirrors of self-improvement, because at heart, spending a lot of time on a game is, you know, potentially decadent, right? So if you're not using it as a way to improve yourself, then that it feels even more decadent because then it's like you can't really point to like what it's doing for you. But do so, you need to? Why does that matter? That you need what's that? To, that, why does it matter that, that we need to point out what it's doing for us? It matters because I think that some people get burnout if they don't feel that there's growth. You know, like a long period of time in something without feeling growth can be very frustrating. Some people, and, but maybe other people feel differently. Maybe. It's true. It's definitely possible. It's possible. But I think that everybody assumes that, uh, I mean, not everybody, but a lot of people assume that if they're having a problem and they see a lot of other people having this problem, that that it's uh, widespread. But yeah, you're right. Like if somebody just kind of enjoys poker and takes it for what it is and doesn't get any better and doesn't care that they're not getting any better then um, and have other things going on in their life, that's certainly fine. But I think for somebody who takes it as their main vocation or their profession, it's very difficult. Oh, you can't, it can't be your main vocation and you not invest yourself fully into it. You know, the poker world is littered with players way more talented than me that no longer play poker because of some sort of leak in their game that caused them to go broke and doesn't allow them to be successful playing this game. So like, if you're going to do it to make money, you have to invest yourself fully. You have to analyze everything. Um, you have to, uh, going back to my, my early days, you know, there was a lot of self-flagellation, right? There was a lot of getting angry with myself for making what I perceived to be a mistake and punishing myself so that I played better um, in the future. And that, that was a big part of my growth. And it genuinely, it helped me to bring awareness to mistakes that I was potentially making, whether it be in theory or in execution, but also I, it was like a switch that I could, that I had to flip off sometimes too, because it could get overboard where I'm playing a session, you know, I'd end my day, I'm, I win 2,200 and I would be super pissed because I made mistakes and I should have won 3,400. Right. And just being able to make a few mistakes while you're playing and say, okay, you've made mistakes. You can't go back and change it. I accept these mistakes and now I'm just going to do the best that I can moving forward. That was very powerful for me, but there needs to be a mix. You need to be hard on yourself, right? You need to be humble enough to genuinely ask if you know what's going on. And if you're striving to be the best version of yourself, you can be, 
but you also have to practice self-forgiveness because we're all going to make mistakes in a game of imperfect information. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm happy that these issues have been so well covered by people like Jared Tendler, um, Josh Whiteskin in the art of learning that this, um, you know, a great ability that we have as humans to be hard on ourselves, to elicit self-improvement also has its pitfalls. And Waitskin's amazing. The Art of Learning is one of my favorite books. It's just awesome. Yeah. So I think being kind to yourself as you learn from your mistakes, it's just so hard because it's just like poker. It's hard to find people who have the patience to be a great player, but also have the aggression to be a great player. And it's also hard to find people who are self-critical enough to improve their game constantly, but also not be so self-critical that they end up hating themselves and quitting. It's like, it's all about those balances that a game that seems a little bit simple on the surface, it's actually very difficult to find human beings who are, who excel at, at those things because of the point that they need, the delicate point they need to be in those balances. Yeah. It's a contradiction. There's, there's a clear contradiction where I love the, the artistry of poker, the creativity. I embrace it and I have to trust myself in the moment when I'm playing a, a big pot and I'm at a decision point, I have to be confident enough to say, I'm going to pull the trigger on this. I'm going to do this, but also humble enough to question whether or not that was a good decision in the first place. Right? Like there's, there's this inherent contradiction of like being confident in what you know, and yet questioning everything just to make sure. Right. Absolutely. Well, yeah, it's, it's a really incredible game and that's why I think people just stick with it for so many years. And I, I believe that the content around poker can be almost something bigger than it, than itself in some ways. How, what do you mean by that? In that like the poker, it can almost be a different game, but it happens to be poker and we're using it as a way as a mirror for our flaws and proxy for how to self-improve and, you know, understand ourselves, finances and people better. And mm-hmm. that's why I find the content boom in poker to be so powerful because even if like things change a little bit with the type of poker we play, I think that that, that, that need for that type of subculture will, will, will uh, persist. Yeah. It's a proving ground. You know, it's a proving ground for mental toughness. It's a proving ground for adaptation. Um, it's a proving ground for resolve. You have to be resolved as a poker player. You do grow and strengthen and you can, apply lessons that you learn in poker in life, right? Where you do everything right, you make the right decisions and things just don't work out and being able to just let it go and not kind of get in those loops that folks get into of, well, maybe next time I should just do X, Y, or Z. It's like, no, I did what I thought was best in the moment and now I can just let it go. Like it didn't turn out the way that I wanted or the way that I hoped, but I did the best I could. But then also, you know, going back to say, did I do the best I could? (laughs) Was there something that I could have maybe done differently or am I just being results oriented? But I think this can, this can guide our way through life as well. Is there free will? Well, seriously though, um, one last question about your podcast. Um, Now that you've been at it for nine months, Chasing Poker Greatness, if it had to have a subtitle or like a slogan, what would it be? Oh, it does have a subtitle. I just haven't promoted it. Oh, that's true. It does. (laughs) It's helping you navigate a house of cards is the, is the subtitle, but yeah, it hasn't, um, I haven't promoted the subtitle because I'm not fully on board. Maybe I I could change it to something that's better, 
but um, that was what I put when I when I made it. I actually put more thought into that than is uh, just fathomable. <laughs> and the name "Chasing Poker Greatness." I thought about I thought about the name a whole lot before I finally settled on it as well. I like the name. I think it's really good because it just kind of explains what you're trying to do, and it has a different vibe than other podcasts and. It's just very, it's very straightforward, but it's also short. So I think it's good. And it applies to the listener as well as the guest. Right. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, um, Brad, for inviting me to guest host your Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. It was very flattering. I'm a big fan of what you do with the podcast and it really helps all of us in the poker world, um, you know, connect with people that we didn't know as much about my pleasure. I love doing it. And thank you for accepting the invitation, taking time out of your life. I did learn in this interview, by the way, why I don't do the, the intros live is because it was just overwhelming. <laughs> the flattery, too much flattery for me <laughs> before I jumped, before we jumped into the conversation. But yeah, you, did, you know, thank you very much. I tried to find the best person that could come to mind. And you are obviously what my first first uh, thought was. And so really glad that it worked out. Well, I'm very flattered. And you know, I, I am a little jealous of your interview technique because sometimes I get so nervous about doing the intro that I feel like it distracts me from my interview strategy. So I, I totally respect. And I even thought about copying you and doing it your way. But then I realized I just have the best of both worlds because I do it my way. And then if it doesn't go well, I usually re-record it. <laughs> right. You do it both both ways. Yeah. But I but I actually I actually really that was something I thought about when I saw that you did it that way. I was like, yeah, maybe I should do that because I'm spending so much nervous energy like thinking about nailing the intro that maybe it's distracting from the actual content. So Plus, I I'll, I'll you know what the content that. is, right? Like you know what the content is when you make the intro afterwards. So you yeah. can you can build it up and tell people what to expect. The downside with doing the intros after the fact is that I often procrastinate doing them. I have to you know, write them out and that takes time. I procrastinate. And what happens is I'll do an interview and then it'll be like a month down the line. And it's like, oh, I need to do this intro and I'll forget what happened in the interview. So then I have to listen to the interview again <laughs> to find the, the high points that I want to mention in the intro. So you know, there are pros and cons with both ways of doing it. But I do remember the famous quote from uh, Berkey when he his episode um, came out. He said that he hoped you'd be available for his eulogy. <laughs> the, the, I remember. But that we as don't well. wish death on him. So <laughs> you guys no. are probably around the same age, right? You're yeah, maybe, we're, we're very yeah. close, and that's another positive, I guess, to <laughs> doing the interview, the intros after the fact, is it kind of solidifies relationships with people. Um, me and Berkey have since become friends that, you know, we're in like a poker content support group with each other when um, maybe we face obstacles that are in our path or get some feedback that's just negative or annoying. We can bounce ideas off of each other. But like, yeah, those relationships, you know, that's the main value for me over the last nine months of the show is just solidifying relationships with folks like yourself and Berkey and Nick Howard. Um, talking to y'all on a regular basis, that's really in life, that's what matters the most to me. And all of y'all are just such amazing people that I get s such value out of 
being friends. Well, thanks again for inviting me. And yeah, I'm sure I'll have you on the grid one of these days and we'll get a chance to interview you on my own show. Perfect. I'll try to do a good job of telling a story. Too. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Chasing Poker Greatness. If you have yet to subscribe to the show, please take a second to do so on Apple Podcasts or wherever your favorite place to listen to podcasts may be. For more content from me, Coach Brad, please visit our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash enhance your edge, and I'll see you next time.